Daniel chapter 4. We're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. Uh, we're not reading the entire chapter, but just the end of it. Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 to 37. This is the word of the Lord. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray together before uh, we get started. God, we thank you uh, for this word, and uh, we thank you that we're uh, connected even virtually through the internet uh, to be able to hear this word from you. Um, and, you know, we should probably pray that uh, God... Uh, you would help us stay connected and uh, we would have no more technical difficulties. But uh, I guess no matter what happens uh, in some way, in some form, in some fashion, that we would be able to hear from you today, that we would receive your word, that you would uh, not only challenge us and challenge our hearts, but encourage us uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, strange Sunday, but uh, I guess these are the times and uh, I'm not the most technically savvy uh, person, but I thank you for those of you who uh, who helped out. Uh, I'm glad we're able to gather here today. We've been going through a series on Daniel, and uh, in Daniel, the overarching theme is that God is in control. And I don't know if we can really grasp the fullness of what it means that God is in control, but at least during seasons of difficulty, it is something that gives us this anchor so we don't get swept away by all the chaos around us and uh, all the sense and feeling that uh, our lives are not in, are in control and our futures are not in our control. And I think that's one of the reasons why the sovereignty of God is something that is reinforced, especially during the period of exile. Uh, if you ever read the book of Esther, uh, the book of Esther has a similar theme as well and takes place during a, a similar context. And when your life is out of control, it's really important to remember that uh, even if you don't feel like you're in control, God is in control, even when it seems like he isn't in control because so many things are happening that we don't like. And when you're in captivity of a foreign power, uh, on the surface, it looks like Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar are the ones who are in control. 
But this is a book that's meant to remind the people of God that even during that season of exile, and even in the season where they are under Babylonian control, Babylon is actually not in control, but God is still in control. So we're continuing uh, through the book of Daniel, and we get to Daniel chapter 4, and we have another story where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and Daniel interprets it for him. Now, because we didn't read the beginning portion, let me summarize uh, what happened and let me summarize Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he has his dream and it alarms him, it disturbs him. In fact, he's so disturbed by it that he decrees that everybody who's wise, all the wise men would come and be brought in and they would have to uh, try to interpret it for him, but none of them were able to interpret this dream. And so he has Daniel brought in to interpret this dream for him. Now, in this dream, what Nebuchadnezzar sees is he sees this big, great tree. And the tree was visible to the end of the whole earth, and it had these beautiful leaves and produced abundant fruit. It gave shade to the animals, and it housed the birds of the air. But that wasn't the disturbing part of the dream. What really spooks Nebuchadnezzar is the next part of what he sees. And he saw a watcher come down from heaven. And watcher, uh, I think we can basically say, is some kind of angelic figure coming down with a message. And this watcher says, starting in verse 14, he says, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And that's the message from this angelic figure, this watcher. Now, without knowing what this dream means, I think you can sense that that's not a positive message for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I don't know if you remember your dreams or how much you've thought about or how much time you've given into uh, perhaps the, the meaning of your dreams, but I've certainly had dreams that were unsettling. You know, one of the common dreams that people seem to have that I used to have uh, many years ago, like several times, I would, dream, I would have a dream where all my teeth would just fall out. And in my dream, I would sneeze, achoo, and as I sneezed, a few teeth would come out and I would say, oh, what's happening to my teeth? And I would feel my teeth getting loose and every time I would, I would spit, a tooth would come out. And I don't know what that dream means. And since it's a common dream, I'm sure many people have come up with various interpretations. But I do remember when I woke up feeling really unsettled and really anxious. And as I would wake up, I would just touch my teeth and say, oh, they're still there. And I would feel some relief. But still, there was this unsettling feeling within me because the dream wasn't a positive dream. Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream. And obviously, it doesn't feel like a positive dream. Uh, if it was just the first part where you have this nice, big, fruitful, beautiful tree, then it would have been a nice dream. But then there's a bunch of negative things that happen. This tree gets cut down, and the person in this dream, whose identity is somewhat vague, becomes like an animal. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's disturbed, and he wants to know, what does this dream mean? And the only person who can interpret for him is Daniel. But Daniel, he's a little bit reluctant to give him the interpretation because he knows this dream isn't good news for Nebuchadnezzar. But eventually what he does is he gives him an interpretation. And Daniel says, that big tree that's strong and huge, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. Your greatness reaches the heavens and your dominion reaches to the ends of the earth. But when the watcher says to chop down the tree and leave its stump and bound it with a band of iron and bronze and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, this is what it means. The decree of the Most High is that you will be driven from among men 
and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You will be made like an animal until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And then Daniel ends, of course, with this final word uh, at the end of our passage. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening to your prosperity. That's the end of, uh, I guess, right before we started uh, our passage for today. That's how it ends. So, of course, that leads us to our passage for today, and it sets up the context for what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Basically, a year goes by, 12 months go by, and Nebuchadnezzar, he's taking this walk on the roof of his royal palace, and he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And that statement is meant to show us the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, how is Nebuchadnezzar exactly being proud? And simply put, it's this. He assumes his own sovereignty over God's sovereignty. Now, Tim Keller, he has this phrase that has, uh, for some reason, stuck with me that I like. And he calls pride cosmic plagiarism. Now, plagiarism is a serious sin in certain places like academia or book publishing. Uh, you know, I just recently started school a few weeks ago. And I got my syllabus, and every time I receive a syllabus for class, there's always this paragraph with bold font that talks about plagiarism and this huge warning and says, if you're caught plagiarizing, if you're caught taking credit for someone else's work, you will automatically fail the class. And in most cases, you won't get to finish your degree. You'll get kicked out of school. If you are an academic who takes credit for someone else's work, you'll get fired from the university that you work at and your academic career is likely over. If you are a publishing company and one of your authors is caught taking credit for someone else's work, they will immediately stop publishing that book and they will destroy all of its copies. Now, plagiarism is a major sin, even in our culture, our secular culture, because there is something deeply wrong about taking credit that, uh, of something that you didn't do and the accompanying glory that comes with it. And that's what pride does. Now, if you remember from chapter one, we are told this, that God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into King Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And the point there is this. God is the sovereign king over the universe. God is the one who orchestrates things according to his will, his desire, his goodness, and his wisdom. Kingdoms only rise when God wants them to rise. And therefore, the only reason King Nebuchadnezzar is in power and Babylon is this flourishing uh, kingdom is because God allowed for it to happen. God made it happen. And many times we don't know God's reasons for why he does what he does. But in this case, we actually know the reason for why Babylon rose to power. The kingdom of Israel fell into the hands of Babylon because of the sin and idolatry of Israel. And that means Nebuchadnezzar was the beneficiary of God's judgment towards his people, which also means Nebuchadnezzar should not be the one taking a stroll on the roof of his royal palace, admiring everything that he has built when God is ultimately the one that gave him everything that he had. That's pride, friends. Now, uh, today is Sunday, and uh, for the last couple of Sundays, my wife and I, we've been watching uh, the documentary, The Last Dance, featuring Michael Jordan. You know, it's titled like it's supposed to be about the Bulls, but it's really about Michael Jordan, right? And uh, I'm sure many of you are watching it today. It's supposed to be the last two episodes, and uh, it's really entertaining and really fascinating, and it's, it's gripped us. Now, I was a big fan of the NBA when Michael Jordan played, and I was actually a Knicks fan, so I didn't like Michael Jordan because he always beat the Knicks. But I remember a lot of uh, what the documentary covers. 
But a lot of it is actually new for Jen, and she got really drawn into and fascinated with Michael Jordan. And it's really fascinating to see the greatness of a human being and the personality behind their greatness. And so as my wife and I, we're, we're just talking about the documentary, we're talking about Michael Jordan and like everybody else in the world, she's admiring his greatness. She's like, wow, like he, he was really awesome. He was really great. Now, <clears throat> uh, here's what I said. I think maybe my point might be unwelcome to some people because uh, you love Michael Jordan, but uh, here's what I said to her. I said, there is no doubt that Michael Jordan is uh, the one of the greatest not only basketball players, but athletes in the world, in history. But I think sometimes he gets a pass for some of his character flaws because he was so great, because he accomplished so much, because he was so charismatic, because he was so strong. But I said this, I think Michael Jordan is definitely a proud and arrogant man. You know, there's a place in the documentary where uh, an opposing player named Gary Payton, who that year was Defensive Player of the Year, talks about how effective he was against Jordan during the finals. And they show Michael Jordan watching this interview with Gary Payton saying that, and he just starts like cracking up and laughing, kind of like demeaning Gary Payton's basketball skills. It's like, come on, that's not really what happened, right? He, I had no problem with Gary Payton. Basically, the reason I didn't play well is because I had things on my mind. And that's part of his greatness in that in his mind, nobody can beat him. Nobody can get the best of him. Only he can beat himself. Nobody's going to be more competitive. Nobody's going to be uh, more uh, harder working. And nobody's going to be more singly focused on the task of winning than him. And we're fascinated. We love that kind of attitude. But I still think that that pride is ultimately a flaw of character. When Michael Jordan was inducted into the Hall of Fame, you know, his speech got a lot of attention, but actually not for positive reasons. Uh, and I remember reading an article probably almost 10 years ago now. Uh, I forget when he was inducted to the Hall of Fame, but it was on ESPN.com. And this article was basically uh, contrasting Michael Jordan's speech with another Hall of Famer who got inducted that night, uh, a basketball player by the name of David Robinson. Now, in Michael Jordan's speech, uh, what he did is he mentioned specific people who doubted him. And he talked about how... Com his competitive nature ultimately proved them wrong. And if you watch the documentary, you know that he gives no credit to the general manager of the Bulls, Jerry Krause, for assembling this team. He actually hated him, but rather he makes this really harsh, caustic remark and says, like, who invited him uh, to this Hall of Fame ceremony? And then as if to say, uh, it's as if to say, you know, this guy made no contribution to my success and my career and the success of the Bulls. And then he starts talking about his kids. And he says this about his kids. He says, I feel sorry for you kids because you have to live in my shadow, right? And then he talks about how even the price of the tickets for this Hall of Fame ceremony shot up because he was the one being inducted and everybody wanted tickets to his Hall of Fame uh, induction. And this ESPN article points all these things out and then makes a contrast and says, by contrast, David Robinson, the way he spent his speech, he spent the entirety of his speech thanking people and giving other people credit. He thanked his family, he thanked his coaches, he thanked his teammates, he thanked his Naval Academy friends. He even thanked his pastor, right? Then he encouraged his kids and he said, uh, he told them how proud he was of them and how much he loved them and how much he loved their hearts and their personalities. And then he acknowledged all these uh, Spurs players uh, that came before him that he didn't even necessarily know, but he thanked them. And he said, you guys laid the foundation for this team. <clears throat> and then he ends a speech 
by talking about a story from Luke 17, where 10 lepers ask Jesus to have pity on him. Jesus heals them, but only one of the 10 lepers come back, throws himself at Jesus' feet, and thanks him. And David Robinson ends his speech with that story and says how he wants to be like that one leper, and then proceeds to thank God for walking with him, shaping him, and helping him through his entire life. <clears throat> now, I don't know if this uh, ESPN uh, writer who was making this contrast was a Christian or not, but it's so interesting how moved and touched that this writer was. He's like, the, you know, I was, on, I was in the gym watching the speech, and it nearly brought me to tears. Now, that's a powerful speech. You see, but we don't, as a society, remember David Robinson's speech. Uh, humility, humble speeches, humble people usually don't get that much attention. And so David Robinson's speech probably got very little attention, but those uh, are the kind of people that God lifts up in the Bible. You see it many times in the New Testament. Jesus says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In the book of James, it says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And in 1 Peter, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And so when we look at Nebuchadnezzar gazing out at his kingdom and seeing that as a reflection of his own accomplishments and his own greatness, it is meant to be a picture of pride. He is committing this cosmic plagiarism. He is taking credit for what God ultimately did in his sovereignty. And rather than giving thanks to God, he's taking credit for that work. You see, that's why gratitude is so important as a Christian virtue. And during this uh, season of pandemic, I am reminded again and again uh, of very simple things like I don't have any control. I don't have any control over my kids. Uh, personally, I had a pretty bad week of parenting this week. So during the time of confession, I just kept thinking about my failures in parenting. But if there was one thing I could get across to them, I would want them to be grateful human beings. I would want them to be thankful. There is something about a lack of gratitude that kind of dehumanizes you. And that's actually what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Part of the dream says he would resemble the beast, which is what he ends up happening. In verse 33, it says, he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of the heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. I think that language, uh, the use of animals is very intentional in trying to show how the pride of Nebuchadnezzar dehumanized him and made him become more and more like an animal. See, things like gratitude and things like empathy, I think, are distinctly human features. Animals are driven by instincts, instincts to survive and to be at the top of the pack. You know, we have a dog, and when we first got a dog, I had to learn that dogs are competing to be the alpha dog. Uh, so when I would walk him, right, our dog would initially, he would kind of lead me and like pull me, but I had to learn that I have to establish that I'm the master, that I'm the alpha. So I would have to make him stop, wait, and when I wanted to move, I would move, and he was supposed to follow me. And, uh, you know, even though I walk uh, and feed our dog every day, you know, our dog doesn't show gratitude. In fact, if we actually accidentally drop a chicken bone on the floor and we try to take it away from him, he turns on us and he gets aggressive and his survival instincts start to kick in. And I say, fool, don't you know that I'm the one who feeds you every day? 
uh, let go of this chicken bone, give it back to me. And still, you're going to growl at me? You're going to go against me because I'm not letting you eat this chicken bone? What about all the other times where I feed you? But that's what it means to be an animal. Now, in our moments of pride, that's kind of how we are. Uh, there's no empathy or trying to understand. There's no gratitude for what maybe another person does. It basically comes down to this. I need to win. I need to win this argument by getting what I want. I need to win and show you that I am ultimately better than you. I need to be the alpha. I need to be on top. And that's how animals behave. And that's what pride does. See, the reality of sin means that we... Uh, probably our hearts tend towards pride and all kinds of nasty weeds grow from a proud heart. That's when we begin to feel entitled. And when we feel entitled, we don't show grace to other people. Uh, we become harsh with other people when they don't meet our standards. Pride, I think, also makes us anxious people. And maybe that sounds a little bit random, but that's actually from First Peter 5. Proud people are usually anxious because they think everything is in their control. And if you are a control freak, it's going to make you anxious when, because life experiences will tell you a lot of things are actually not in your control. In our culture, sometimes it's hard to see pride because I think we tend to value achievement and greatness more than uh, good character. I think that's why Michael Jordan, whom I do, I do love and I do admire him, but that's why he oftentimes gets a pass. Now, it's not his fault for getting a pass because ultimately it's a reflection of the values of our culture. And yet, the Bible continues to tell us that God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And this, of course, plays out in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Even though he had time to do what Daniel told him to do, to break off his sins by practicing righteousness and showing mercy to the oppressed, he doesn't do it. A year passes by, and maybe because a year passes by, he thinks to himself, uh, oh, I must be out of the woods. Uh, that warning from that dream, maybe it's not going to be fulfilled, but it does come to fruition, and he does get humbled. And afterwards, after this period of humiliation, uh, where his hair grows and his nails grow long and he becomes uh, like an animal, he lifts his eyes to the heavens, and he blesses and praises the Most High, which is a way of saying he's finally giving God the credit that he is due. Verse 35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And what he's basically saying is this. He's saying, look, the people on earth, including myself, are nothing compared to the most high. God does what he wants to do and nobody can stop him. Nobody can even question him and say, what have you done? Because his sovereign hand has done everything. And we get this great summary of the lesson in this final verse. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now some of you, maybe you have some questions about, or maybe some pastoral questions about this, and you think, well, Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't he an oppressor? Didn't Babylon do some really terrible and horrific things to the people of Israel? How could God put him in power? And maybe we think about that for some political leaders in history or even today in our world. And we question, how could God put them in positions of power? Well, it's not necessarily because they deserve it. But we have to assume that God has a greater plan and a bigger plan and a plan in which uh, not where 
not where not one kingdom or one nation um, is uh, the ultimate kingdom or nation, but a plan in which he wants to establish his kingdom as an everlasting kingdom, which supersedes any kingdom on this earth. That's why in uh, our world, kingdoms rise and fall all the time. No matter how powerful they get, they will always come to an end. But how can we be so confident that God's plan and God's kingdom really are better when things don't always look so great here on earth? And I think Jesus is a big part of that answer. You know, God does oppose the proud, and God does show favor to the humble. And I think that's a reflection of God's character and a reflection of God's justice. Pride is evil, and so God must oppose it. Humility is good, and so God should be favorable to those who are humble. And that's almost always true. It was true for King Nebuchadnezzar, but the only time where it wasn't true, if you really think about it, was when it came to Jesus. You see, because Jesus was already the humble one. We could even, even say that Jesus was already the humiliated one because he had to experience this kind of cosmic condescension by becoming human, by being born as a baby in this dirty manger. And Jesus would be the humble one who would even wash the feet, the stinky feet of his disciples. That phrase, stinky feet, comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you have kids, right? Stinky feet. Jesus would be the humble king who would enter Jerusalem riding not on this majestic steed, but he came in riding on a donkey. If anyone deserved God's favor, it would have been Jesus. Jesus was the humble one. And yet God opposes Jesus and withholds his favor from Jesus when Jesus is crucified upon the cross. Now, why would Jesus be the exception to this? And the, the answer is quite simple. The answer is this, love. It's love. Sometimes I tell couples this uh, during premarital counseling, but I say, you know, uh, relationships and marriage uh, is never going to be fair, completely fair. Uh, someone in the marriage is always going to be doing more. Uh, even if you were to try to divide things up equally, you know, there's seven days in a week, right? So someone is always going to have to make dinner more. Uh, so how do you thrive in a marriage when things are not always perfectly fair? And I think you need love. One person or both people ideally have to say to one another, I want to serve you and therefore I'll do more of the cooking. I'll do more of the cleaning. I'll watch the kids so you can get a break and so you can rest. I'll give up sleep uh, so that you can sleep more. I'll give up what I want so that you can get what you want. And that's how loving relationships work. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, what he did is he demonstrated great love for us. He's, you know, it's not fair that I'm up here on the cross, devoid of God's favor, absorbing his full judgment for the sake of our sins, but I'm going to do it so that you might receive God's favor and be spared from his judgment. It's not fair to me, but I'm going to do it because I love you. And if you believe that gospel message, that has to shape how you understand what it means that God is sovereign and in control of all things. You see, because if he would go to such lengths to love us in such a way, then whatever happens in this world, whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, can't be because God doesn't care about us or God doesn't love us. He has already shown us in the person and work of Jesus Christ how much he loves us. And therefore, 
we should always assume that God has some good, wise purpose for what he does, even when we don't know what that is. That's faith. But you see, it's not a kind of blind faith. It's not the kind of blind faith of like those who blindly trust evil authoritarian dictators and kind of become yes men and do whatever they say. But it's a kind of faith that knows that God has given us that which is most precious to him already, that he has given us his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might receive that which ought to be most precious to us, that we might receive his presence, that we might receive his face, that we might receive his salvation. But you see, we are proud, and therefore God should oppose us. But because of Jesus, he shows us great favor. And so, let's respond to him by giving him all the credit in the world. How? Through our praise and through our gratitude for all that he does and all that he gives. Let's pray together.